Well, g'day church. I can assure you that this isn't my plan A for how things would be going today. Uh, but I'm so thankful to God that we can rest assured that it was all part of his plan anyway. I'm also really thankful to the wonderful church family uh, that we've joined here and, and all your encouragement to us uh, as Peter and I and the kids uh, spend this week at home in, in isolation with COVID. Um, and thankful too to those people that have made it possible for us to do this via a video. I know it's harder uh, kind of paying attention, keying in with the video than there in person. But I know I've found it such a great encouragement to spend this time that I have in Ephesians chapter 2 that I'd love to be able to share this with you. So thank you for your patience with us uh, this morning. Well, as we turn our mind to this wonderful passage from Ephesians chapter 2, I want to kick off with a question for you to get you kind of thinking, the cogs turning. The question is simple. What are the categories that you have for people? If you were to put people into, you know, column A, column B, what are the categories that you have for people? Look at the simplest level. Quite obviously, we all have the people that we know and the people that we don't. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can also bring to mind fairly easily the people that we enjoy spending time with and the people that we, well, less so. And there are lots of other ways that we put people into categories and into boxes, perhaps based on relationship status, maybe married or single, maybe stage of life. There are kids and grown-ups. As we look on at the world around us, it's very easy to, to look on at people and think, well, they're the good guys and they're the bad guys. For all sorts of ways, all sorts of reasons, right and wrong, we put people into categories. But I don't think we think enough about the deep reality of the two categories that the Bible has for people, dead and alive. And, and to be clear, I don't mean the people who are physically deceased, but of those who are actually walking and talking and, and living at the very moment. The implication of our passage today is that everyone is in one of these categories, dead or alive. So when you, when you walk through Westfield Marion or you, you take a stroll down the Brighton foreshore or you, you go to the footy with your mates and you join a whole stadium full of people, the confronting perspective that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 gives is that you're walking amongst the living dead. Now, I'm hoping that even with the downsides of a video sermon, we've managed to get your attention at this point because this is the stark reality of how the Bible describes our state. And friends, I want you to know that I get that's pretty confronting. But I also want you to see just how tremendously encouraging it is too. Please keep your Bibles open as we pick up from chapter 2, verse 1. And of course, whenever you come to chapter 2, verse 1, you remember that we've just finished chapter 1, the end of which Paul was falling over himself to celebrate God's amazing power to raise Jesus from the dead. And then he continues in chapter 2 with a really stark contrast. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Which is as full on as it sounds. Because do you notice that Paul doesn't say some of the things that we would like him to say? He doesn't just say that well, we were about to die unless we were rescued. It's not even, well, as for you, you were as good as dead. Or, or even, because you sinned against God, you deserve to die. No, Paul is actually saying something much stronger than any of this. Let me paraphrase to help us see the emphasis. Paul might have said... In other words, as for you, your rebellion against God meant that you were living in a state of death. Or to pick up on some of the ideas he uses in verse 2 and 3, as for you, you lived in spiritual death because in your very nature, you rejected God. 
So I don't know how you feel as you sit there in your chair today, having made your way to church on this fairly typical Sunday. I wonder if you find this a little hard to relate to. And look, on the one hand, I, I think that's fair enough, because it is pretty confronting after all. But as confronting as it is, every one of us needs to recognise that, that this is our story, this is my story, and it's actually God's kindness to, to enable us to see it, to see the reality of my state apart from Christ, that apart from Christ, I am dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's, it's a pretty harsh statement. It can feel like a bitter pill to swallow. But friends, we need to remember that last week we were encouraged to grow in our passion to know God better. Well, that means allowing him to help us to know ourselves better too. That even if we, we look back on our own lives and, and, it, and it feels like we just struggle to see how desperate our situation was. If we, we look around at others and we, we struggle to see how desperate their situation is, we actually need to let God teach us what is really going on. Now, to help us illustrate the point, consider a bunch of cut flowers, like these. Not just a pretty backdrop, they're a salmon prop. Look at them, beautiful in, in all of their colour and pop and, and their seeming life. And yet, these flowers, they're actually dead. They've been, they've been cut off from the source of their life. And for all of their pop and their colour, they're just on their way to the green bin. And while we may have looked fine on the outside, and while your neighbours and friends, they might look so full of life, we need to hear God's spiritual diagnosis with all of its gravity. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And friends, we need to be honest about why we're in this state, which God helps us to do through verses 2 and 3. In the coronial inquest, of the cause of death for each one of us, it's been found that there are three contributing causes. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Read with me from verse 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. My friends, the way of the world is always to walk away from God, whatever society you might live in. We might hear the lament that Australia is moving away from its Christian heritage, but the harsh reality is that every cultural worldview sets up idols that turn us aside from God. The way of the world, that's like, that's like the river that we swim in with the current of its perspective on the world and, and life and humanity constantly flowing away from God, leaving us dead in our transgressions and sins. And apart from Jesus breaking into our worldview, humanity cannot break ourselves out of that worldview that is set against God and, and his glory and his purposes. But did you notice that it's not just the rebellion of humanity as a whole that's on view? That was part one. Uh, contributing cause part two, the coroner identified, is an external factor, as verse two continues. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And that is to say, well, the devil. The devil who is opposed to God and his glory and his purposes. The Bible is not shy about his sinister presence. Ever since Eden, 
The devil has been convincing people of, a, of an endless stream of lies about God. That he doesn't love us. That he doesn't really want our good. That he is not actually good or powerful or, or, or even present. And so to run with the metaphor, if every person is drowning in the river of the ways of the world, well, the devil has his hand on their heads, forcing them under the water. And yet for all of that, we can't play the victim card. As verse 3 makes painfully clear, we are willingly participating in this rebellion. We've all chosen to jump into the river without a life jacket. Read this really frank analysis with me from, from verse 3. Let me just turn it up. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You see the implication of that? No one can object to God's judgment and argue, oh, it was just the way that my parents raised me, or you know, it was just it was just the pressure of my peers. No one can stand before God and, and, and cry out and claim, well, the devil made me do it. No. We are all willing participants in our own demise. Our flesh, that word used there in verse 3, our flesh is the Bible's way of describing who we are in our sinful human nature, that at our very core, not just in our actions or in our words that people see on the outside, but at our very core, even the very thoughts and desires, we are sinners. No one forces us to sin. The confronting truth is we do it because we like it. We want to. And it leaves us entirely deserving of God's wrath. We cannot claim that he's been unfair in his assessment. Or look at our neighbours and our family and, and argue that God's a bit over the top in his judgment. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And, and so are the crowds down at Westfield Marion or, or down there at the beach or at your work function or your family gathering. Like the bunch of cut flowers cut off from life, even though they have the semblance of life, they are dead and without hope. And friends, I, I hope you can feel the gravity of it. Because part of how God helps us to know Him better is by enabling us to know ourselves better so that we can actually see just how amazing His grace is, which is where Paul turns his attention now. Read with me. From verse 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, you don't need a medical degree to know that a corpse can't save itself. A dead person can't call triple zero. They can't connect the cardiac defibrillator. They can't do their own bypass surgery. You were dead, but God. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And yet, you have to wonder, why? I mean, surely that is the big question that just flows out of this. Why would he do that? Well, it is simply because that is what God is like. He is rich in mercy. It is simply in his character that he is merciful, though we were undeserving. In fact, we were deserving of his wrath. He is rich in mercy. And yet, even in that, mercy, mercy is a funny thing, isn't it? Mercy can be kind of cold and detached. You see, for the Ephesian Christians, 
I wonder if the concept of mercy, the mention of mercy, might have brought to mind the great battles of the gladiators, living as they were in the, the Roman Empire there in Ephesus. The gladiators were men condemned to death, death by the most violent means of conflict with one another, and when finally brought to the end, brought to their knees, finally hanging on the mercy of Caesar. Their life is in his hands. Thumbs down, and they die, thumbs up, and they live. Mercy was something that Caesar could dispense on a whim for the, for the thrill of the crowd and, and the adulation of all and, and the power of it. Now, Caesar was not known for his mercy, but God, God is rich in it. But more than just rich in mercy, did you see that his mercy flows out of his love? Because of his great love for us. There is nothing detached or, or self-serving or power-hungry in this. God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us, he has made us alive with Christ. As verse 5 sums it up, it is by grace you have been saved. And I think that's a pretty powerful definition of what grace is. Mercy motivated by love. That's what's amazing about grace. We were dead. And not by some accident or someone else's fault, but because of our own willing participation in the ways of the world and the influence of evil, we were dead. But because of the great love with which he loved us, from his very being that is rich in mercy, God made us alive with Christ. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's the amazing reality that Paul gets really excited about as we, as we read on from verse 6. And, and we, see, we see that everything that he has done is with Christ. It's in Christ. And we read there in verse 5, he's made us alive with Christ. In verse 6, he's raised us up with Christ. And he's seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. When God makes us alive, it is together with Christ so that where he is, we are too. Included in the power of his resurrection life. You see... If we were dead and are now alive in Christ, this life that we have now is resurrection life. Which, let's be honest, is kind of hard to get our heads around, isn't it? So what on earth does it mean? I mean, literally, what, what does it mean here on earth that we've been made alive with Christ and are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ? What, what does that mean? Well, to tackle the more obscure idea first, that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, I think Paul's hinted at the significance of us being seated in the heavenly realms when he referenced a little bit of spiritual geography earlier on that was fairly easy for us to gloss over. Did you notice that he spoke of the influence of the world, the world that we live in? And he spoke of the influence of... The devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is how he described him. But he's already described Jesus as seated at the right hand of God, above all power and authority, far above this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Lord Jesus sits enthroned, and where he is, we are. So the simplest implication of us being seated there with him is that it radically impacts the way we think about temptation and sin. You see, to use another metaphor that Paul brings up in another part of the Bible, it means that we are no longer slaves to sin. Because we don't sit under the world 
or under the devil. But we sit in the heavenlies with the king who has overcome it all. So friends, this actually becomes very practical. Because while we still struggle with temptation, you need to know this week that you are not obliged to sin. You are not bound to sin. You are not powerless to say no to sin. When it comes knocking, you can actually look it in the eye and say no. Now, I want to be really honest with you. I struggle with this as much as the next person to do it consistently. But but to know that I am indeed raised with Christ and seated with him, that is, that is immensely powerful. As I get on my knees and I ask God, the, the God of the universe, to remind me where I sit, that I'm, that I'm with Christ, that, that sin no longer has a hold on me, that I can say no to my lust, to my temper, to my selfishness. And so that's one thought on being seated with Christ. But I actually want to major on what Paul majors on here. The emphasis that God has for us in this part of his word. The wonder of the grace of God in Christ. I mean, how do we respond to that? Well, for one thing, it means we sing Amazing Grace, right? Like you guys have already done today. We delight in the fact that there was, there was nothing of this that was of my own doing. It was all a gift of God from beginning to end. That's, that's what verse 8 and 9 says. Let me, let me find it here so I can read it with you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Which on the one hand sounds quite straightforward. But it, this, friends, is, this is the deep truth that must saturate our lives and our church. That we are saved by grace. That it is all a gift of God. So that, for example, when we find ourselves looking down our nose at, at a sinner, whoever that might be, we remember that we were all dead in our sin until God made us alive. I think it means that when we are tempted to think that, well, somehow I've proven my worth to God through my immense good works, my great deeds of faith, we need to remember that, that even that faith is a gift from Him, not to mention every other capacity that we have. We do good works, not... Not because we want to earn his favour, but because we delight in his good grace. And you know, I think it also means that when we are tempted to think that, well, he couldn't possibly forgive me for that, insert some great sin. We need to remember that, no, it was, it was always by grace. <laughs> that I was dead and now alive only by God's grace. And so this sin that I find myself in, no sin is too great for the power of his grace. And friends, I think that following out of all of that, knowing the grace of God in Christ, means that we look on at the people around us with the same kind of mercy driven by love that our God shows. Because we understand what is at stake. Now, allow me to finish with one final illustration. 16 years ago, uh, I was working as a resident medical officer, an RMO, at the Lyle McEwen Hospital. Very junior in the world of medical doctors. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I, and as part of that role, every now and then you carried the MET page. The MET page of the medical emergency team. The medical emergency team is made up of a whole bunch of um, emergency specialists 
uh, who are rostered on uh, to, to cover the emergencies that might arise within the hospital. If someone has a heart attack on the ward, it's the MET team that are called. So I remember very clearly a particular afternoon when my buzzer went and I knew, well, that's the place that I need to go and do what I can. As the RMO, let's be honest, I was really just there to take notes and run errands to do what I could to be helpful. But as I turned to, to attend this particular call, I realized this is actually just around the corner. It's, it's, it's barely 10 meters from where I am. It's the war that I've just left, which of course meant that as I arrived, I was the first to arrive. In fact, I came to that patient's cubicle even before the nurse had been able to get back with the trolley of equipment, the nurse who had made the call. And friends, I can tell you that the scene is kind of embedded in my mind as, as I drew back the curtain and, and saw the patient that we'd been called to attend. In so many ways, he was just very average, a middle-aged man looking so very ordinary in most ways, except for the colour of his face and that it was evident that he wasn't breathing. And so I remember as I strode into that cubicle, my heart beginning to race, I was just running through the first principles of what I'd been taught to do in such a situation. I, I, I'll get the airway was, you know, I sort of blubbered out to the nurse who was hurrying back with the trolley of equipment. And, and, I, and I went around and I, I took this man's head and I simply did what I'd only ever done on a, on a mannequin before and, and lifted his chin. <gasps> and I can tell you that it, it is a remarkable feeling to feel the breath of life coming into someone who was otherwise dead. It's not that I did anything heroic that day. I mean, I'm very thankful that the clever people hurried in at exactly that moment, uh, much more capable than I to work out exactly what was wrong with this man and how to keep him breathing and restore his heartbeat and all his other vital functions. But I can reassure you that that, that feeling has never left me. The sense that, that actually here was a man who was dead but had taken the breath of life. And ever since then, as I read Ephesians 2, his face is brought to mind for me as I am reminded what is at stake. That, that this is what is at stake when we reflect on the grace of God that brought us from, from death to life. That this is what is at stake when we gather together that we... We breathe the very life of God into each other as we speak the gospel of his grace to one another. That this is what is at stake. When we hold out the word of life to our neighbours who aren't just dying because apart from Christ, they are dead. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you are a God of grace and, and resurrection power, that though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you have intervened to, to make us alive, to raise us with Christ, to seat us with him in the heavenly realms. Father, we want to praise you for your glorious grace. Thank you for your work in our lives. We ask that out of that you would grow us in a courage to face our temptations, of the ways of the world and the influence of evil and our own flesh, but to say no because we are with Christ. Father, we want to pray that you would grip us with the desperate reality of the situation for those who don't yet know Christ. 
And for those times when we feel like we are stuck in our sin, help us to see your amazing power, your incredible love and mercy poured out to us in Christ, that we might receive that gift of grace through faith and nothing of ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would just instill deep in all of us a great passion that we might, we might long to share this wonderful hope, this wonderful message with a world around us who so desperately needs to know Jesus. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Friends, I very much look forward to being with you in person next week. Bye for now.